Welcome to Tuesday Conversation with Friends. Today I have a very special guest, Jode Bognar. He's a pianist, author, and the host to the award-winning film series *Living the Classical Life*, which has over 2.3 million subscribers on YouTube. Well known around the globe in musical and cultural circles, this is what it looks like to be a musician in the 21st century. As a concert pianist, Joe frequently gives inspiring performances in North America, Europe, and Asia. What you are hearing right now is from his album *Joe Bognar Plays Fronts and Fronts*. This is number one, *Allegro Asai* from Schubert's Three Impromptus, Deutsch Number Nine Forty Six. Stay tuned to hear more about Jode and some more inspiring performances from him. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Tuesday Conversation with Friends. Today, I have a very special friend, Jode Bognar. And Jode, teach us how to say your first name properly. It's Jolt, which I can say is like the S in pleasure, which sounds maybe a little bit wrong, but <laughs> it's one of the few sounds in in American English that we can connect to this、um, Z S combination in Hungarian. You know what I love is the fact that we start off by being a little bit wrong because then we know this is going to be a fun and fantastic conversation. This is fantastic. I love it. And、uh, so, Jolt, what is the heritage of your name? It's unusual. It's wonderful. It's beautiful. I love it. And、uh, tell us a little bit about your heritage because it just seems to be so interesting. Well, first of all, Shirley, I wanted to thank you for having me on. It's a pleasure to be here and to speak with you. And I've, I've admired what you've been doing, especially adapting during this period. Something that I've、too. tried to do. Something that I've tried to do, but it's it's not the easiest thing. Where really the the way of reaching people these days、mm-hmm. is through an online method. But of course.、Right. There, there, there comes a saturation point, so we have to make sure that our our content is is good. And and I've loved everything that you've done. Thank so, you, and I loved yours even before the pandemic. It's always been so interesting. It's wonderful for me as a musician to see two truly musical people interact with each other. Because、uh, to me, the interaction is much more natural and very authentic. So thank you for doing what you do. Well, thanks for that feedback because we try our best. To convey what we feel passionate about, but、mm-hmm. I never really know how I come across, and I know that I'm not for everyone, and not necessarily everyone would understand me, especially just because, as as we're about to talk about my background, mine、mm-hmm. is quite unusual. So maybe people don't always know how to categorize me, if that's important to them. But、um, I was born in Urbana, Illinois, to <laughs> a multicultural parents. My father was born in Budapest, in Hungary. Mm-hmm. Um, so I spent a lot of my childhood summers there.、Wow. Uh, I grew up speaking Hungarian in the ho- in my home. In, I love it in my little university town in Illinois, Champaign Urbana.、Um, and my mom is from the Philippines. She was born in Manila, but it, it seems that all of her ancestors were Chinese, and we didn't actually know this until recently, which is an amazing thing because here in America we keep records of everything. But for example, it it was not an uncommon thing that,、uh, for example, my mom's、uh, younger brother didn't have a birth certificate, so we didn't know what his birthday was, so we made one up. Right. 
So these cultural exchanges, well, my, my mom and dad met in Japan. They met in Tokyo. Wow. And they were both studying there in school. And, and, um, and I was born in Illinois. So, I mean, I don't look like uh, <laughs> someone who would be born in, in sort of rural Midwest. But, well, I don't know. People might take issue with that. It was a cosmopolitan community university town. Right. And uh, there I grew up and I and I talk too much, just like any good Illinoisan. Oh, I love it. You make my job so easy. <laughs> well, it's it's funny because the, the way people from the Midwest tell stories, everything is an anecdote. I so love you, that. You know, I when I was a kid, I, I used to deliver newspapers and this this was to support my habit of, of buying CDs one a week. I know. Uh, right. That, that was my education as a kid. We had no YouTube. We had no Spotify. Right. You had to buy the music you yeah. want to hear. And you don't get a sample at first. You have to buy to know what it sounds like. I recently I was recently in Boston. I was visiting the high school where I went. Um, there was a there was nice. a Walnut Hill school and that's in Natick and I I took a little nostalgic walk through the town and found that there was an actual record store there with classical records and all the other types of music, of course, but they had records and CDs and even cassette tapes. And I walked wow. in and I said, the last time I had seen anything like this was really in Boston in the late 90s when I was going to school there. And I said, I really feel like when I wanted my nostalgic walk through this town, I really got it. Like, I am back there, <laughs> you know? Oh, so you I know. One thing about you, it just seems like you almost, almost like you're from a different era than, than, than where you're born into. And I love that personally. I think it's so charming and so wonderful. And I, I'm just a little curious about how do you feel living in this world and which seems to be a little different than what you naturally gravitate towards? Well, that's an amazing question. And I actually got goosebumps when you asked that because oh. I've never had anyone ask me that. I have always somewhat, uh, I've been thinking about this a lot as to we're born in a certain time. And of course, there are so many reasons why I feel lucky to be born during this time of, say, modern medicine, mm -hmm. especially with what we went through with COVID and the vaccine. But Recently, I was talking to my teacher, Sergei Babayan, and he was describing a teacher of his. And this teacher was Georgi Sarajev, a name that no one would know, especially in the, in the West. But Sergei recently uh, dedicated his most recent release of the Rachmaninoff album to Georgi Sarajev. And Sarajev was a pupil of Sofronitsky. So we're talking like the old legends of the Russian piano school. Mm -hmm. And the one thing he talked about with this teacher, Sarajev, is that he seemed to be from a different era. Mm. And he, as a child, studying with Sarajev was mesmerized by this. He says, I wanted to be like that too, where he had this old world genteel manners and mm. this kind of cultivated upbringing who he knew stuff and he took great care. I don't think that all of those values are necessarily not of this time, but I was mesmerized when he told me this story. And... I, I somewhat never feel entirely like I fit into today's world. Um, I'm always, despite the ad nauseum posts that I'm making, you know, day, on a daily basis on social media, I'm still really uneasy with it. I, I get I, it. I relate to that 100%. Like we don't really want to, but we feel like we have to right. put ourselves out there partially mm -hmm. to be noticed. But for, for example, a lot of my work 
uh, living the classical life. It's an online format. Right. And and so how else do I get word out about it other than posting right. social media? Tell us how do we find your episodes? Because I know there are two formats now versus one before the pandemic. That's right. Um, so with the formal film series, which has a, a, a full production crew, mm-hmm. usually films in New York City, there are two places that you can find this. So one is on our YouTube channel. You can just punch in Living the Classical Life and we have at, at the time that you and I are speaking right now, mm-hmm. uh, there there are about 83, 84 different episodes. We filmed about 90, and uh, we're hoping that there will be many more to come. You can also visit livingtheclassicallife.com, mm-hmm. where you can find this in Vimeo format, which some people prefer that. They think it's a more elegant interface, but um, I think it's very similar. Um, what I've done recently during the pandemics, you know, obviously I've not been able to film with a crew and have people in, in person. So I've tried to do some um, virtual conversations, right, right. these live chats through Instagram. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of limitations to that format, but, yes. but it's it's a nice way to have some interaction. Right. And, the, and the cool thing about it is that some of the fans who are tuned in, they've really loved the chance to interact and to ask questions right and and it's it's funny because for me i've led some of these conversations i said i don't know if that was any good or if that was interesting i was like would anyone tune into that um especially for for what i say Mm -hmm. um and then i get these letters from people saying you know thank you so much for doing that that was so interesting i'm like really (laughs) right so how did you get into this at first place? Because um, I know you're also a writer. You're a, well, let's, let's back up a moment. Let's talk about who you are before we get into why you got into this. You are a pianist. And, um, and I've, uh, of course, you know, there's, there's information online about you, which is helpful for me, that I know you love Schubert, you love Schumann, and a big part of it is because you fell in love with vocal music, and Cecilia Bartoli was somebody you just really, you loved. And, and, uh, and but, you know, who are you? And uh, what are your identities in this world? And how did you get into, uh, you know, this, this online format, this, this show that you started hosting? And what are you doing nowadays besides that? Well, surely, I, that, that's a really interesting question, because these are things that I think about on so many different levels, <laughs> whether musically or personally, mm-hmm. I, I, I think I'm still sorting this this out. Mm-hmm. For, for us as musicians, you, you as a singer, I'm, I'm sure that there are so many aspects of finding literally or figuratively your own voice. Right. That, I mean, we're, we're pushing the keys and making an inanimate object sing. Mm-hmm. Uh, as for my identity, I think my unusual life keeps people guessing. <laughs> right? <laughs> it's like, who is he whose name know. starts with a sound of pleasure? Right? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I, I grew up studying piano, and, and this was the center of my every dream as a kid. I, I grew up, when I was buying those CDs each week, I was collecting recordings of Van Cliburn, Horowitz. Ah. Ashkenazi. Right. These were the ones who were readily available, at least right. before before I became like a really hardcore collector. Mm. And, and I looked at that and I said, "Oh, that that seems like a magical life where you go around the world and you you share your music." Mm. Um, little did I realize that that particular lifestyle 
doesn't necessarily exist in that way anymore. I mean, mm-hmm. that was a generation of pianists who benefited from basically the Steinway company. They were walking right. bills. They were. I remember when Horowitz was, um, I think he met Rachmaninoff in the Steinway Gallery in New York, in the, in the basement, right? The basement, and, which I remember that old Steinway Hall. It was, it was right yeah. in the hall. And the, yes. the lobby was a slice of, of 19th century New York, which mm-hmm. is, is a little bit elusive. But um, for example, both of them, Horowitz and Rachmaninoff, they were both part of the A-listers of mm-hmm. the Steinway which right. that included both Rubenstein's Anton and Arthur that right. that included Joseph Hoffman and and Paderewski. So mm-hmm. these parents could basically go anywhere they wanted to so long as they played the Steinway and they, piano. Steinway have the big big I mean on the side of the body of the consagrant Steinway and Sons. Right? But you know today that that is is about this size. Back then it was actually enormous like there's no way Go for to, it what the brand is. <laughs> so so they could do that. And back then people were buying, every American household aspired to have a piano. Right, because this is even before the radio. And so this was a form of entertainment. And that's the reason why we have those paper rolls, those piano rolls for the uh, for player piano players, because they could record those famous pianists. Uh, they have remember that recording of Gershwin pl- uh, that was recorded on the on the music roll on the roll. And, uh, and, and the people could play that in their living room. And so that was, you know, piano was the thing to have. It yeah. was having Gershwin there in the room. The pianos that were really well calibrated in those days, and it's hard to find such pianos, the reproducing pianos, it really felt like before the digital era, it was like having that famous artist in your own living room. Mm-hmm. Added the fact that these pianos were also kind of a status symbol. That's and right. People wanted to say, oh, look, we can have a piano, which mm-hmm. was kind of fun, you know, and it has a cool shape and everything. As for me, I was I was mesmerized by all aspects of the piano, including the shape. So, for example, Stravinsky was always saying when he's trying to compose for the piano, he started by looking at the piano. He says the shape of it just inspired mm-hmm. him. And then the ideas started to come to him for for his piano compositions. I mean, isn't that kind of cool? Wow. Well, of course, we hear about this, the, the story of Chopin and the raindrop prelude. He was really driven crazy by the raindrops where he was staying, right? And it's, it's um, you know, I, I, I noticed some of your postings in also some groups where you talked about you also collect different editions of the scores. Yes, and and this didn't. I didn't even realize that this was something worth doing until I got a little bit older and, and realized. Um, it, it started out by comparing different recordings of different pianists. I said, "How could they sound so different?" Mm-hmm. And in some cases, they're playing completely different notes. I said, "Oh, are they are they misreading?" And I said, "Okay, well, Schnabel has his own edition of the Beethoven sonatas. Okay, let's have a look at those." And I said, "Well, is that really so different from?" The Henley edition, I said, well, yes, it mm-hmm. is very different. How, how could that be? So I would compare and I would try to get closer to whatever the composer originally did. And the cool thing about the internet now, and sometimes on IMSLP, you yes, can, yes, you can my imagine. favorite friend. <laughs> right. Exactly. Sometimes it helps so much financially, right? Um, so so there, there that was, this comparing the scores that that can be helpful i i recently had the discussion with with a, a friend of mine we were comparing 
pianists, um, and I won't mention their names because they're alive, but we, we compared two different performances of the Davidsbundler of Schumann, which mm. is a adore and only recently came to sort of understand how amazing it is. But one pianist seemed to be all about the poetry and rising above the score. And then the other pianist seemed to be a slave of the score. Everything was correct. Absolutely everything was correct. And yet it didn't seem to rise above it. And I'm sure if we, if we could, if you and I could go back to the day and wouldn't that be amazing if we could meet Schumann. Yeah. Schumann. It's and so true. Ara make music. I'm sure that both of them would would tell us either in words or through their performances that the score is just the starting point. You know, it's I got to share this wonderful thing I've experienced during the pandemic. Um, during the pandemic, everybody's so much more open to connecting with people they don't know, but share things in common, particularly in music. So I've connected with some living composers. And uh, and one one was a young man who wrote a series, a collection of piano solos. So when I played, I sent it to him. So what do you think? And he said, I love the way you played, even though it's not the way I heard it. He loves the way it comes to life. And then yesterday, I had a wonderful Zoom call because there is a composer, a female composer, and uh, she uh, she she writes a lot of educational music for young pianists. But she recently has one of her advanced piano solo pieces published, and I loved it. And it sounds nothing like the rest of her stuff my students play. And uh, so I asked her, have you written anything for a lyric soprano? And she did. And she sent me a song cycle. And we had a wonderful Zoom call yesterday going through the pieces and her original intentions. And... Uh, it, what's really interesting to me is, and I've not really done any music like this, is she wrote a poem to the music as well. It's a collection of eight songs about the, the, uh, her experiences of visiting Lake Superior. And, uh, and, and she wrote, she's a pianist, so she, the way she wrote was very pianistic. And, uh, and so, so, you know, it's, it's been a pleasure to be able to speak to the composer directly. And because it's like what you said, I spent my whole life wondering what would the composer say about all those different practices, all those different interpretations. And, uh, and you know, I think a lot of those composers that you and I are so enamored with, I don't think they had a lot of opportunities to hear people playing their pieces who are professionals. Because, you know, of course, they want to sell as many copies as they could when they were alive to the, really, the people to play in their living rooms. And... But, you know, but all those great pianists of, you know, the past hundred years who made recordings. Yes. And then the other thing that we, we have to keep in mind is sometimes these composers can change their minds. Yes. For example, I, I was listening the other day to a lot of recordings of Rachmaninoff playing his own music. And I was looking at this. <laughs> he's disregarding everything he wrote. Right. Descriptions of Beethoven playing by his friends said the same thing. They said, wow, he, he made these wild rubatos, you know, changed the time and the tempos and put oceans of pedal where, whereas the score was very specific and, you know, professors do this kind of thing these days and, you know, they say wrong. Um, again, so the, the score can just be a, a, a departure point. But um, I think it was Stephen Huff who, and I apologize if I'm misattributing uh, this, this, but um, he, he pointed out that if we have performed 
a particular work, say, say a Beethoven sonata, mm-hmm. across different periods of our lives, we have had a longer working relationship with this score than the composer did. That's so true. Oh my gosh, I never thought about that. Yeah, because they wrote it, and composers like Beethoven and Mozart, they had moved on. They composed it, then they set it aside, and they went on to their next works. Right. You know, they didn't slave over it like we do, like I have to in order to to get halfway decent if I ever get get there. But um, yeah, the, the examining of the scores has been a fascinating process. And of course, back to your original question, what, how do I categorize myself? You know, sometimes I feel like I have to be careful because I have so many interests in life mm-hmm. and I don't want to sort of diffuse whatever abilities I might have that have to be honed in. But, um, you know, because being a pianist, that's that's a 25 hours a day pursuit. Yes, it is. To get things good and to, to, to expand your repertoire. The living the classical life, me me as a host, I mean, to me, that's a, that's that's that makes me laugh because I grew up as a really shy kid. I, when I was six or seven, they were trying to assess, you know, what grade to put me in just to, you know, where, where should we start in school? They couldn't assess this because I wouldn't say anything. I wouldn't say any words <laughs> or I would start crying. But, oh. <laughs> oh. So me hosting a show, I never thought that that was an accidental thing. So, a few friends and, and I were trying to establish a website for me because I didn't have one and, and it seemed everyone had to have one. Right? <laughs> I, you know what? I've lived for a long time before the pandemic without, I still don't have a performer's website because I don't really know what to do with it. You know, I, I don't think people really do much with websites anymore. At the central <laughs> central gathering point seems to be Facebook, people will just look there. Uh, right. But even Facebook now seems to be kind of. I, I recently tuned into a live stream of on Instagram of, of two young people, and it was on <laughs> music. And and the subject of Facebook came up, and they said Facebook. Who uses Facebook? That's for old people. And I'm like, it's like why do people make phone calls? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. No one leaves, you know, a voice voicemails. Mail. Right. Why are you bothering me by calling me? It's yeah. like uh, people are texting each other from two sides of the rooms. Yeah. You know? They say, don't don't bother me with a voicemail, you know, text me. Yeah. So the, the evolution of the website, I remember I played a, a recital in in Palm Springs and mm-hmm. I just played this recital. And uh, there was there was an old woman who, who came backstage and she asked me, do you have a website? And I said, well, at that point, yes, I, I did have one. And she says, oh, well, then you must be good. And I said, but you just heard me play. Shouldn't that be shouldn't that decide if I was terrible or not? Um, no, for her, if, if I had a website, then that was impressive. So I well, had- I'm from California, so I get to say it. That's California for you. <laughs> You, you have to be famous to be good. If, you're, if you have a web presence, then you are famous. <laughs> well, that's, that's, of course, the perception these days. And, and that brings us back to the, the question of how comfortable we feel with social media as a way to connect with people. It's, it's a love-hate relationship for, for me. Yeah, I as relate to that. To connect with the widest possible audience. But it is very self-serving, and and it can look. Ex- I mean, there's there's a fine line between getting your work out there and being narcissistic, mm-hmm. uh, which yeah. sometimes it's hard to tell which is which. The line is so thin, and um, 
And I think for people who are immensely private, um, it's very interesting that we could be sharing things that appear to be incredibly personal, but it is very uh, manicured. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So the question is, when are we being completely ourselves? And that's been sort of a theme of our conversation. Right. Who, who am I? How do I categorize myself? So as a result of this show, which I, I'm very grateful has been a way for me to connect with many, many people around the world and many of the personalities that I grew up admiring and then many really meaningful people who have connected mm -hmm. with the content. Um, at the same time, it's, it still feels like each time I'm in front of the camera, I'm like, why why is it me who's in front of this camera all i am is this guy from illinois who talks so much and and is <laughs> maybe that is exactly why <laughs> because you are a guy from illinois who is open to talking you know and that may make you so i think we can relate to you we can relate to you and you seem to also have a superpower but yes we can relate to you i think that's why we really enjoy watching you interacting because a, a lot of your guests most of many many of your guests are are legends and uh, and uh, but most of the time when they're interviewed they're interviewed by somebody who is not necessarily a musician uh, or maybe someone someone may have a musical background but is not necessarily a performer like yourself so it's always been really wonderful to see you connecting I do remember at one point in my 20s when I was studying um, one of my mentors and uh, William Januzzi and he was the music director for Baltimore Opera for 30 some years until the day he dropped dead in the opera company. He said at some point surely you have to begin to realize there is no difference between you and the greats. So what are you going to do to become as good as they are? I, that's so interesting that you should say that because I was watching an interview of someone I would have loved to have had on the show, but I was too late, Dmitry Vorostovsky. Oh my goodness, yes. I, I was in New York and watching a, a, dress, a dress rehearsal for Verdi's Requiem at the Met uh, the day after he passed away, and they dedicated that particular performance because those dress rehearsals are really public performances to him. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Absolutely. So I had no idea. I, I had grown up hearing his Met broadcasts over the radio back in those days. It was radio at first. Um, and, and his incredible recordings. I didn't know what kind of person he was. So I, I saw this, um, this, this online chat series and there he was very, very informal. And he talked about in, in high school, he, he was collecting all these recordings of the great singers he admired. And at that time, he said to himself, well, why can't I do that? If they can do it, I can. So I'm just going to try to be that good. <laughs> so that was his starting point. And this, this immersion of, of being around people you admire yeah. I mean, that has been really one of the lucky things about my show. All I do is just ask the questions that I was curious about. How did they right. get there? How did they overcome all the doubts that they had? And most of them had the same doubts that I had. So right. that was that was really refreshing. But then I, my musical identity doesn't stop there. I run a, a concert series south of Cleveland in Hudson, Ohio, and this oh. is a series that's in its 38th season. I mean, that also takes 25 hours a day. Yes, it does. I know, because I helped. I, oh my goodness, that is a that is a lot of work. That is a lot of work, and managing musicians is. A difficult job 
it's a difficult job on so many levels because you're mm -hmm. keeping so many people happy, whether it's right. the public who, who you hope will come to the concerts, the mm -hmm. artists who you hope will feel valued That's and right. to give their best performance. And, and their managers. <laughs> their managers. And then you have to interact with the donors. And that's yes. Then you have to interact with your board. So that's a whole separate conversation. Oh, yes. It's running an arts nonprofit. Well, I didn't have training to do any of this in, in school. I would have loved to have, but I had to figure it all out. I almost think those are the things you learn on the fly. And I also think um, uh, some people, and I have a feeling you are one of those people who have a special gifting in the personality, just navigates through those different personalities very well, because that's almost the biggest part of the job, is to have the kind of ability to adapt to a lot of different personalities, and, and most of those personalities are very big and big in different ways. And so be able to be around them, for them to see you as one of them, not somebody who's not just somebody who's there to serve them, but as one of them, while you can serve the interest of the organization it is an art in itself. I grew up as one of three boys, and so I was the middle child. So ah. often it's said that the people who are middle ch uh, children they they are kind of good at mediation and, and diplomacy because they're always between adversarial forces. Now, my brothers were lovely, but of course there's the normal sibling kind of interaction. I do, that, I do think that that had something to do with it. Oh. Um, and I have to say that what you're saying is absolutely correct. A lot of the work that I do in whatever capacity is negotiation and diplomacy between people involved because there are a lot of personalities involved. Right. Right. Ninety-nine percent of it, in terms of resolving conflict, is, is communication. Absolutely, it's helping people to see that their visions can benefit each other versus against each other, and uh, and it's not about winning and losing. It's about that 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 capital W and the you know the lowercase w can coexist and that's an art in itself that is a lot of different hats you wear and I I, I know you also you're also an author you're also a writer I when I was nine or ten years old my father gave my, my brothers and myself uh, little journals and said you you should write down your thoughts and, and and your observations about the world and your your life right now one day you'll thank me and and that's that's how it started and then through middle school and high school I had a lot of great English teachers who really got my love of of writing going and I was a voracious reader too that makes a huge difference it makes a huge difference but I think to tie this all back together I think what this really came down to was I love a good story. I love, yes. to, I love to tell a good story. I love to hear a good story. And I'm always trying to gather these things. I grew up as an, as an NPR junkie, mostly. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I just wanted to hear people's life story. Right. And not just how, how successful they became, but, you know, what did you have to go through in your life? And how did you navigate that difficult thing? Uh, and then when they shared that thing, then I feel like, there's so much that we can all connect uh, over, and 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 I think that really comes down to the. I know it sounds cheesy, but that the, these are some of the the essences of what we try to communicate as as musicians. Not to impose that onto the music that we play, but as a as a tool that we try to use to understand what the composer had inhabited in their own world. 
I think it's almost a requirement to truly bring this music to life with a, with a certain depth. And uh, and you know it's interesting because uh, I I became a singer because uh, because I wanted to be close to the words because I wanted to be close to the words and I couldn't believe uh, the depth and the colors the words can be expressing so many different languages when I discovered vocal music and I know at a very young age you also were exposed to vocal music and uh, your CD was made of. Composers who wrote a lot of vocal music as well as piano music, Schubert and Schumann, right? And can you talk to us a little bit about your relationship with that? And uh, and uh, and I can we hear some of your playing? Yes, absolutely. Well, on YouTube, it's it's almost deliberately almost nothing is there of my own playing, uh, and that's just because I'm I'm so shy and kind of scared of putting my my work out there. I, I yes. I usually don't think it's good enough. That's uh, the reason why you see me doing the tutorials for the student piano pieces, but so few of my vocal work, because it just feels, it never feels like that should be the end of the road for those pieces. <laughs> right, and, and don't get me wrong, th this is not me being falsely modest. This is me just always never feeling satisfied with what I do. I mean, that extends from the practice room to the concert hall. If something uh, is, is not so bad, on occasion, I feel like that's accidental, uh, and and that has to do with the the hard work that I try to do. But if you go online, you can find uh, there is this preview for that CD. Um, I saw that. Yes, and you sound wonderful, and uh, you you may be um, you know very modest, and I think it's false false modesty because I love the way you play and I also saw the the I think it's a TED talk a TED med or what's it called and yes, and that that's a, a, an offshoot of the TED brand the mm -hmm. TED med is it's different from even the TEDx which is mm -hmm. I think syndicated franchise that happens in different parts of mm -hmm. the world um, but I was very lucky to to be asked to give a talk there um, and I, I'm never sure because I'm asked to give more and more talks and performances. I'm never really fully sure why I'm being asked, whether it's for my playing or is it my talking or maybe a combination of both. I think it has to be a combination of both. And Jolt, personally, I adore your playing. And I've actually listened to your entire album and I was just... I loved it. it. It was beautiful. And, you know, and as a lot of musicians, what we do is we stay up late at night. We think we're going to listen to one or two things. And and then we put this on the loop and then we forget to go to bed. <laughs> well, thank you for saying that. And, and I I always thank anyone who talks about me as being a pianist because that for, for most of my life, everything was centered around that. It was, right. it was my big dream continues to be really, if, if I could work through all the issues I have with nerves on stage or just me liking my playing or not, I, I still very much think of myself as a, a pianist or someone who really delves in the world of all this great music that I love. So yeah, I think it's, I think it's a, maybe a combination of those two things. And I'm grateful for that because the standard career, that would be probably too stressful on my nerves. I, I don't think I could endure 120 concerts a year of playing the same pieces, or maybe that might get easier 
you know, rather than just giving one concert a year where it feels like all the pressure comes down to that one concert and it's, it's a one-off and then you feel like, oh my goodness, I'm going to die. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for being so honest about that feeling. So that Russian pianist I mentioned before, Safranitsky, who at his best could play like a god, and at other times it was just so difficult for him to be on stage. And there was a quote that I read that is each performance seemed to him like an existential confrontation with the instrument. And I thought, oh my God, that's amazing. Wow. Because I also had the other perspective, which was sometimes in Europe, I, I had was one period that I'm thinking of where in 11 days I had 10 performances. Certain aspects are a little bit easier because from right. night to night you can sense where your baseline is, where you start mm-hmm. to see how much you can Right, spend. right, right. When you establish that baseline, you say, okay, well, tonight I think I can really go for it here, but I can also pace my energy so that I don't run out of steam there. So that's helpful, but it's still difficult for me and still exhausting because I do give my everything to my performances. You do. I've watched some of your, um, and it's, it's, it's fascinating because uh, you can tell it's a person with a somewhat reserved personality. And that's usually, I've seen you begin a lot of, some of the clips I've seen is how you began. And, but then there's this incredible passion and focus. And, and of course, your technique is wonderful. And, and it just, you know, it just, it all comes together, but it's a lot of intensity, a lot of intensity. And it could be, it in itself is exhilarating at the moment and very exhausting afterwards. Well, yes, you have to sort of, look out for your own adrenal health you know, I, who wants that it doesn't matter right <laughs> like, I, I sometimes wonder i like i look at my performances and i say wow that looks really manic you know hungarians <laughs> tend to be so choleric <laughs> and it, everything is so extreme but during this about a month ago mm. i had a really interesting lesson mm. and, and and this has to do exactly with what we all had to go through in the past year the, the way to connect with people is through an online format. So this mm. pianist, Mario Joao Pires, I, I hope I said that correctly, she started offering online lessons. And I said, oh my goodness, Ooh, wow. I love her playing and especially her Schubert. So I said, why don't I learn a new Schubert piece mm. and play it for her and sign up for these lessons, which you can you can do. Um, and so I learned a, a, a Schubert sonata, the last one, the B flat, which I always... Um, you know, coming back to what you were saying about singers and Schubert, I feel like all of his melodies were really derived from anything that a singer could could do. It was mm-hmm. all within that framework. Because you, you can look at <laughs> melodies of Beethoven, for example, and you say, oh, a singer probably couldn't do that. <laughs> well, and uh, even his arias and his art songs would go, well, it's really okay. I just listen to his symphonies instead. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Or his Fidelio. There's there's so much there that is incredible music, but it's it's really unrealistic for the voice. Mm-hmm. But I played for Maria Schwapirsch, and and she had so many fascinating things to say. But one of them was on this subject of of what you're talking about mm-hmm. about intensity. And she said, Joel, if we want to be expressive and bring the message of the music across, we have to ask ourselves how much of this feeling do we give away to the audience and how much of it do we keep for ourselves? And I said, whoa. Right. So then what was your, uh, because now it's, it's been, you, you've had a little time to play with that idea. Um, 
What has your journey been like playing with that idea, kicking it around in the way you work with that piece? Sometimes we think of this even in terms of our own lives, because、mm. I consider myself a really open and transparent person. But sometimes, if we bring it back to music, by letting something unfold in layers, and I was extremely、mm. flattered that you perceived. I I certainly do, and I I love it. That you perceived a pro- progression.、Mm-hmm. I think sometimes for the listener, having everything given to them all the time could be overwhelming,、mm-hmm. and could in fact detract from the maybe making a a really focused point.、Mm-hmm. So, I I think also her point was by dialing it back a little bit. Sometimes the listener can fill in some of the blanks through their own experience, and I thought that that was fantastic. That's just my projection, and that's my my conjecture. But I think also if I didn't put the pressure on myself that I'd always have to be two hundred percent on stage, maybe it wouldn't have to be so difficult to always play.、Mm, but you know that that makes me think of two things. One is who is our audience today? Well, I think、uh, this past year, as difficult as it has been for live art,、uh, performing arts, you know, live performances, I think this has been a year of great transitions. I think we have broadened potentially some of our audience bases, and by by people being a lot more generous in giving away their performances, and、uh, because people needs to be exposed in order to have a chance to fall in love, it's like you can't fall in love with somebody you've never even heard of, and、uh, you you need to somehow know this person is there, right? So the same thing with this type of music. So who is our audience today, and what touches them, and why? I'll put it this way,、mm-hmm. because you made me think of、um, on. Who is our audience? But、huh. I'm also wondering on what level do we connect with our listeners? You were asking earlier about my relationship and and how singers inspired me. Years ago, here in Cleveland, I heard a Schubert recital. It was Ian Vostridge and、uh, Julia Strake, a pianist I、um, intensely admire. And I remember this evening. It was in the small hall of Seconds Hall, and.、Uh, It was just an evening of Schubert songs,、mm. and I remember at some point feeling tears going down, and then I just kind of secretly glanced at at people. Everyone in my row, they were doing this. Then I looked behind me. There was a woman who was covering her face with her program book because she didn't want people to see that she was crying too. Right. And I just sort of thought to myself, okay, well, what is the audience perceiving here?、Mm. I'm going to assume that most of them, or a lot of them, didn't speak German. Some some of them were following along with the texts. Others were looking. So, are they connecting with the music? Are they connecting with the texts? The combination of those, how it's being presented to them,、mm-hmm. the music itself,、um, sort of divorced from the understanding of the words. You can also、mm-hmm. be paying attention on that level. Or it could also be something else entirely. It could be the vibe in the room. It could be the collective experience of being there in the audience, and that's one thing that we're excited to return to. Hopefully, yes, yes, definitely, right. But I'm thinking of something that Christian Zimmerman, the pianist, said. <laughs> He said that in a performance of what's communicated, he thinks that 
only 40% of it, even in a piano recital, only 40% of that is music. You say, what is the rest of it? Right. The rest of the experience, what's going on, what's being communicated, what's being sensed. Mm. I'm not sure I had the answer to that, but I think that's one of the exciting things mm -hmm. about the world of performance. I think part of it is that it's in the moment. Right. And I remember the second thing I was going to bring up is, you know, with, um, I do have a friend who's now in his 90s. He was a concert pianist who toured in Europe. And, and then he decided he just couldn't do it anymore. And so he quit and he went to medical school and became a doctor. And I also thought about somebody like Glenn Gould. And uh, of course, I would joke with somebody else that, you know, he was the granddaddy of all those people who are live streaming online, right? And, uh, and, and he just really made a conscious decision of he stopped performing live and he just recorded and, uh, and it was a different pursuit of perfection, right? And he, um, what are your thoughts on people's decisions like that? Because it's not a abandoning and departing from the music making, but it's an active choice in doing it differently. That's a fantastic, brilliant question, because I think that that goes to the heart of how we feel at our best. When I was speaking uh, in the early days of living the classical life to um, the singer Nathan Gunn, mm -hmm. he, said, he said, make your art where you make your best art. So if that's on recordings, make recordings. If you feel like you make your best art in a house recital setting, mm -hmm. sing lots of house recitals. If you if you flourish in a big hall, then aim to do that if you can. Um, I know a woman here, a very close friend of mine, uh, and, and I'll say her name, Raika Radivojevic, uh, because I'll, I'll send this to her. Okay. Um, she heard Glenn Gould in concert mm. in the early 60s in Toronto, which is, of course, where Glenn Gould lived his whole life. You know, we, we think of this notion that musicians have to live in, say, in the center of the New York or Berlin or Paris. Mm -hmm. He lived his whole life in Toronto and he flourished there. Mm -hmm. She said that she observed, listening from the second or third row, that she could actually see his hands quaking. He was that nervous. It, it was such suffering for him. And, and, and I thought, wow, okay, even on his level of, of talent and genius, that he experienced whatever it was that caused him to have that reaction, mm. he found his way of reaching his audience was through the controlled setting of the studio. And, and of course, we know he really flourished in that way. Right, right, right. Absolutely, absolutely. Yes. And... Um, Wow, you know, it's just been such a pleasure talking with you because it just, uh, it's a beautiful exchange to me. It's an exchange of humanity. It's because uh, to me, that's what music speaks is humanity. And uh, whether it's live, whether it's recorded. And, uh, and I think one of the things about the pandemic that I personally appreciate is I think uh, when digital recording came about, music making became perfection driven. And, uh, and, but during the pandemic, it's allowed people to perform in the, in a much more humanistic way again. And I think we need to speak more humanity. And I was having a conversation with another pianist and he said, when he judged competitions, 
he knew what kind of pianist was going to what they were going to win. And uh, but there are also those who would do something with their music, and they weren't the ones who were going to win because uh, they did something. They took a risk. My piano teacher uh, in recent years has been asked to judge more and more competitions, and, and one thing he says is that he can very quickly tell who is there to try to win something and who is there to try to share their love of music. Mm-hmm. Now, those things are not necessarily mutually exclusive, but you can kind of tell the difference pretty, pretty quickly on what level they're trying to engage. Right, right. And, uh, and you know, I, it's interesting as a teacher, as an instructor, I'm able to help my students to make decisions to enter into competitions and win them. And, uh, but it's another layer and level to help them to become inspired and that little extra something, you know, and it's a, it's a very interesting thing. And, uh, and I think today we just cover so much about so many different things and so many different levels of humanity within music making. And, uh, and we get to know you as a human being, which I think is a privilege because for all those episodes you've done, I always feel I can see a part of you coming through. It's always so authentic and so, so just so engaging and so honest. But at the same time, you're always so focused on the other person, which is, what's, which is so beautiful. And, uh, but today we got to see you. And, and it's such a privilege. And I just love and thank you for sharing who you are. Well, surely the pleasure was all mine, and and I realized that this this conversation the the time just flew by, and I I ran the clock into the ground with all my endless blabber. But I have to say that the ideas that you've shared and and what you put into a conversation are very inspiring to me, and and have given me a lot of uh, food for thought. So whereas I don't, and I've mentioned this to you, whereas I don't usually go back and listen to any conversations that involve myself, I will listen to this one again because you brought up points that uh, I would have been taking notes on. So thank you so much for for having me on your show for this conversation. And I really wanted to express my admiration for what you do and how you do it. Oh, thank you. And likewise. And so we're going to say goodbye right now, but if you stay tuned, you're going to get to hear a solo show play at the end. And it's going to be from his album. And, uh, and I hope you get to fall in love with his music as much as I have. So until next time, thank you, Joel. Thank you, Shirley.